and welcome to the next installment of the History Twins podcast. I'm Aiden Kaplan. And I'm Tristan Kaplan. Today we are at Princeton University interviewing Professor Michael Gordon. Gordon specializes in modern Russian, American, and European history, as well as physical sciences. He has written five books with a focus on nuclear weapons and the Cold War. His Five Days in August closely examines the United States' decision to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki, while Red Cloud at Dawn, Truman, Stalin, the end of the atomic monopoly, deals with the U.S.'s brief monopoly on atomic weapons. Professor Gordon, you're an expert on those two topics, so let's start there. From your Five Days in August, 2007. The two-bomb myth represents a common tendency to collapse what was the case with what had to have been the case, and which thus was known in advance to have been so. Could you explain this two-bomb two myth? Sure. Uh, when I first learned about atomic bomb, I suppose the way most people do, I don't even remember whether it was in high school or long before then, there's this assumption that not only were there two bombs dropped, one on Hiroshima on August 6th, 45, and one on Nagasaki on August 9th, 45, but that people knew in advance that you needed two bombs and only two bombs to generate a surrender. The usual thinking here is one bomb to show that there is a bomb and a second bomb to show that we have more bombs and that that was sufficient. Um, the question that struck me was how, how many bombs were there? Like, what if the surrender hadn't happened then? Would there have been a third, a fourth, a fifth? And so when looking back into the scholarly literature, into memoirs, into all the documents, no one actually interrogates that point and assumes that we used two bombs because those were the ones that were necessary. And the actual answer is we used two bombs because that's what we had. And if there had been more bombs, one imagines one would have used more of them. So that two-bomb myth gets solidified pretty quickly, but only after surrender. Before surrender, no one can say that two bombs would have ended the war because the war is not over. And so it's not a myth until much later, that much later means like six months later, when people start to rewrite the history to make it seem inevitable. So do you then think that a two-bomb scenario was unlikely? It might have required more, quite plausibly? Uh, it's un That's a great question because it requires you to think about what actually ended the war, which is sure. a very hard question to get into, and I'm sure we're about to. Um, <laughs> uh, the, when, when looking at what people said before August 15th, 1945, which is when the surrender actually happens, um, but in a time period when people actually knew about the atomic bomb, by people I mean a very small set of scientists, politicians, and military officers, there's a lot of discussion about whether the bomb should be used, most people think it should be, um, the vast majority think it should be, uh, how it should be used, how it should be timed, and what else should go with it, and what they should expect. And the sense is we should definitely use one, and if we use one, it'll shock them, and maybe it will produce a surrender. Uh, maybe we should combine it with some other statements about the conditions for the emperor, or Soviet entry into the war, or blockade, or other firebombing, etc., um, but there isn't a strong sense that we should use two. And I, the strongest evidence of that is that uh, Harry Truman um, doesn't actually sign the document that allows people to begin atomic bombing, allows the Army Air Forces to do that. It's signed by General Handy. It's probably shown to him at Potsdam, and he almost certainly verbally okayed it, but it's not officially signed. What that, bomb said, what that order says is start bombing on or after... Uh, early, I think it's August 3rd, early August, on the first suitable day. And the second point says, keep bombing on the list of the following cities, and about five are listed, um, subject to the supply that is provided by the Manhattan Project. So the initial order doesn't say, let's use two bombs, that should do it. And then the first bomb is dropped while Truman is on the USS Augusta coming home from the Potsdam Conference with Stalin and Churchill. Um, and an announcement is released. The second bomb happens, and it's clear from all the documentary evidence, the people who met with Truman, that Truman was shocked, because he assumed that he was going to authorize a second one, and he never did, because the order doesn't say you need a second authorization. The order says keep going. So the fact that Truman was surprised, and in fact immediately on August 10th, seizes back control of the bomb and says no further bombing will happen without my express permission, indicates that he didn't think it was two bombs either. Uh, that two-bomb thing starts to happen later when people say, well, one bomb was dropped, second bomb was dropped, surrender happened, and because those things happened in that order, they had to happen in that order. The Latin word for this logical fallacy is post hoc ergo propter hoc, 
afterwards, therefore necessarily so. And uh, that's a very common way we reason about our own pasts, but it's not what the documentary evidence shows. So how close did the U.S. ultimately come to going through with Operation Downfall invading the Japanese mainland? Um, as far as you might have expected them to go in, in, in mid-August 45, they were planning for it. it you, planning a large land invasion is something of several months' duration. You need to get all the ships over, you need to get the materiel over, the tanks, the guns, the people. You need to get make sure there's enough food. So they were in the process of doing that, and the uh, prospective date was early November 1945. And things were well underway in preparation for that in early August. It wasn't like they stopped those preparations and then dropped the bombs and waited to see what would happen. They kept those going. And in fact, they kept those preparations going even after the official surrender while they waited for the surrender to take. I should put take in air quotes there. Like it takes a... The emperor surrendering doesn't mean that everybody laid down their weapons. And so people were uh, anxious about how prepared they should be. So I would say they were as serious about it in, on August 14th, 1945, as they had been bef on, on August 5th, before the atomic bombs had been dropped, or even in March, before anybody had thoughts about whether they'd be ready in time. Again, from five days in August, once the Soviet Union became a belligerent, the only option was to confront Americans directly or to risk a final battle, and the possibility of Tokyo becoming a divided city like Berlin. Did Japanese military officials actually consider a Soviet takeover of mainland Japan likely? Since the U.S. allowed the Soviet Union to annex so much territory in Europe, was there fear that surrender would mean the division of Japan? Uh, the division of Japan is probably going too far. Did, they, uh, did the Japanese officials actually think that there might be a divided Tokyo? Absolutely. One of the factors that's very rarely talked about in the American-centric uh, literature about this stuff is the Japanese are not passive a passive black box just receiving... Uh, limited information from outside. They have observers in Europe. They're allies with the Germans. They see what's happening as things go on, and they have lots of reports from the early summer of 1945 of what's happened to Berlin and what's happened to Vienna, both of which are divided cities with four sectors. They know there's not going to be four sectors because there's no French involved in this particular uh, conflict, but the idea that there might be a Soviet occupation of Hokkaido, the North, um, the North Island of Japan, or that there might be um, some territorial disputes, or that the Marxists within the um, within the Japanese polity, who had been severely suppressed uh, during the Hirohito period, would take over some power or demand political concessions. Those were all live concerns. And so surrendering to the Americans, or at least approaching the Americans, seemed like a better option than waiting and letting more players into this. That would necessarily lead to less sovereignty for the emperor, necessarily lead to more political instability, and um, they were worried about Soviet territorial seizures, which in fact happened. The Soviets mm -hmm. do seize the bottom half of, the, of Sakhalin Island, and they seize the Kur Isles, which is still a point of dispute today between Russia and Japan. Sir. Although uh, some would say that it was because of the Russo-Japanese War, it was essentially the Russians reclaiming their last territory. <laughs> they, would, they would say that, although the the... That war was a war between two expanding imperial empires, and uh, who, whose territory that rightfully belongs to is uh, a matter of dispute. But that's absolutely the way the Russians would uh, proclaim that. Yes. So how did Hiro uh, Hilo get off so easily? As you mentioned, quote, polls in July and August showed that roughly one-third of Americans wanted his immediate execution, one-fifth imprisonment or exile, one-sixth the trial, and only three to four percent wanted his employment by the Allies. Uh, so there's a, I, I suppose, a sort of procedural argument there and then a pragmatic one. The procedural one is that on, uh, right after the Nagasaki bombing, uh, a missive was sent to, uh, Washington, which said, we kind of are interested in, we're worried about the status of the emperor. And... Uh, this would be a modification of the unconditional surrender, which since the Tehran meeting earlier in the war had been the stated war aims. We're not making any negotiations. We will surrender unconditionally, and then we set up what happens afterwards. Um, and uh, there's a response written by uh, Jimmy Burns, who is the Secretary of State, um, who uh, writes back something that effectively says, you surrender and we'll, don't worry. It'll, it'll be okay. Uh, it doesn't quite say it that clearly, but the Japanese interpret that as there'll be some guarantees for the emperor. So there's some sense of a promise that was fulfilled. 
The real reason, though, I think the pragmatic one is that you, the U.S. needed uh, the entire Japanese military to surrender. Uh, the Japanese military isn't just on the home islands. The Japanese military ranges all the way down to Vietnam and is fairly deep into China and Korea. So they need all those people to surrender. And to do that, they work on the assumption that the emperor and the bureaucracy that's loyal to the emperor are going to be able to get that to happen. And also that they need um, people loyal to the emperor and the civil service to keep the country going. And that when you uh, remove the emperor, what you're going to end up doing is causing chaos in the civil service. It's going to be much harder to occupy this country. And occupation was something that they've been worried about since the since 43. And their experiences in Germany have shown what the shattering of a bureaucracy is going to do without, unless you try to rebuild it as fast as possible. And so keeping the emperor in place is a statement about how they want to cement Japan into an alliance with the U.S. and they want to have it governable and they don't want to have the U.S. there for 30 years maintaining it and occupying it. And keeping the emperor as a ruler is the way to get that to happen. World War II era U.S. diplomat Joseph Grew stated, quote, I know Japan. I lived there for 10 years. The Japanese will not crack. Even when events will defeat stares them in the face, they will pull in their belts and other knots, reduce their rations from a bowl to a half bowl of rice, and fight to the bitter end. End quote. How common was this belief amongst Gru's contemporaries? If the Allies had insisted that Hirohiro be, uh, be executed, do you think the Japanese would have continued the war to Gru's envisioned bitter end? Um, th that, so that view is, is very, very common, that the Japanese will fight to the end. Gru says that, but Gru also says a lot of times that they'll surrender if you make concessions to the emperor. So Gru is a kind of weird figure. He's not consistent. But um, <laughs> the place where they get that idea from about uh, that any attack, any um, that they'll fight to the end no matter what, comes from the experience of the battles on the Pacific Islands as uh, they approach Japan. So the Battle of Saipan was incredibly bloody and civilians committed suicide rather than be captured. They were told that if they were captured, they'd be raped and tortured and killed anyway, so they commit suicide. Um, they weren't told that by the Americans. They were told that by the Japanese. Sir, sir. And, and, and so as you moved from island to island, the, the death tolls are higher and higher. And the inference from that is that the death tolls will become super high when you hit uh, Kyushu or one of the main islands of Japan. And so that assumption is very widespread, and it's baked into the idea... That becomes baked into the idea that what we have to do, what we, what the Americans have to do at that time period, um, is give the Japanese a set of arguments that are irrefutable that can allow for surrender to take place. The atomic bomb is seen as one of those arguments. The emperor is seen as another one of those arguments. Um, I, the emperor surrenders on August 15th. The, Amer the occupation begins on September 2nd. That's when the surrender is signed. Um, after that period, if they had done something to Hirohito. I don't know what would have happened. It would have definitely made the occupation substantially harder, more, uh, requiring more investment and longer. But uh, would it have re-triggered the war and caused co conflict to spark up again in China? It's totally unclear whether that would happen. But by that time, the um, by September 2nd, during those two and a half weeks or so in between the, surren the, the surrender and the signing of that on the USS Missouri, there's time to adjust to uh, a new order. And that new order involves Hirohito having some place in it. And so that decision got made pretty early. Why were the Allies so insistent on unconditional surrender? Would you have advocated a different policy, perhaps simply promising the Japanese a few conditions and then double-crossing them as soon as the occupation begins? Um, so... I certainly would have advocated double-crossing. To get to that, <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's start with why unconditional surrender. A great deal of how World War II is fought depends on people, is contingent on how people imagined, remembered the history of World War I. And uh, what they want with unconditional surrender is what, especially Roosevelt, who's the biggest advocate of this, he's dead at the time of the um, actual surrender, but, um, but he was insistent on it for Germany, is because he wants there to be no possibility of claiming that there was a deal that was broken, which is the argument that Hitler and the National Socialists make about the Treaty of Versailles, that there were certain promises that had been made, and those promises were violated, and therefore they're justified in rearming. And this argument that Hitler made was received a lot of international support when he said, we should be allowed to have a military. You said we couldn't, but that deal was a bad deal. 
and you broke your part of the deal. Instead of that, unconditional surrender would be like tabula rasa. We start at the beginning, you agree to give up everything, and then we reconstruct from scratch. Some of the appeal for that with Roosevelt is some, similar to the appeal of the New Deal domestically. It was the idea of reconstructing a society to root out the, um, the parts that were causing things like fascism in Europe or causing the dictatorship in Japan to get rid of those features by allowing full reconstruction. And that's the whole thing you could only get with unconditional surrender. That doesn't ob obligate the allies to root out everything root and branch. They obviously left in the emperor and a bunch of other things, but it does mean that that decision belongs to the allies, not to the people who surrendered. And that policy was very firm. Uh, I actually thought the, the policy had costs. The biggest cost is um, in lives. If, the option of a conditional surrender had been possible earlier, almost certainly some kind of deal would have been worked out in Europe. Um, whether that means Hitler abdicates power and somebody else takes over, some kind of national socialist state can still exist, or maybe there can still be a Germany with some territory. Like, people would have had those negotiations, and there was a desire to not negotiate with Hitler on any terms. And that became the policy for Europe, and therefore became the policy for the whole war. Um, Double-crossing. Double-crossing is very tricky because it's not like uh, geopolitics is a one-shot game. If you uh, say you're going to keep the emperor and then you behead the emperor, the next time you try to do something and make a deal, no one's going to believe you. And mm -hmm. uh, we've seen over the course of U.S. history, both distant and recent, what happens when people break their word. It makes it much harder to make a new treaty or a new alliance. And um, there are elements of uh, elements of how to keep good faith. And these people all believe very strongly that their word mattered. Um, they were, the diplomats involved here had a, a long tradition of being raised in norms like that. And Truman was uh, very proud of being a man of his word and didn't want to back down on stuff like that. So there's a characterological aspect that means they're not going to sort of give up those particular beliefs so easily. All right, so switching focus to your red cloud at dawn, Truman's down in the end of the atomic monopoly. The U.S. monopoly on nuclear weapons from 1945 to 1949 was far more short-lived than most contemporary experts would have guessed. Why were they wrong? Um, well, they were wrong and they were right. Uh, one of the weirdest things, this is one of the things that drew me to looking at this in the first place, is if you look at uh, in mid-1945, so in the summer right after the bombs were dropped, the, immediately the question is, could the Soviets do this? Because they the Cold War is already shaping up. People know it's going to go that way. And people say something like, oh, it'll be about five years, maybe 10 years. And then they say the same thing in 46 and the same thing in 47 and the same thing in 48. It's like, so it's always five to 10 years. So in a sense, their initial five-year estimate was actually pretty close. It was 1949. Um, but they forgot that they had made that prediction and they always defer back how far away those five years are. So uh, in one sense, they, were, they had good estimates at the beginning, and then they progressively delude themselves into a different estimate. So why are they wrong? Um, they're wrong for two reasons. One part is the Soviets doing, and one part is the Americans' fault. The Soviets doing is the Soviets get a lot more information out of espionage than the Americans thought they had. Um, there, was, there was significant espionage, not just of the Manhattan Project, but of radar, of proximity fuses, of tanks, of B-29, of almost everything, economic and and uh, diplomatic policy as well. So they got all that information, and some of that information was quite useful for figuring out what would be dead ends and things you shouldn't do to make a bomb. So they were able to shorten the amount of time they could use. That said, the U.S. basically built a bomb in three and a half years. No other country has built a bomb that fast. So the Soviets take about four and a half years, and other people take longer. Uh, so even with the excess information, they still are slower for a bunch of reasons. Um, the thing that the Americans doing is the Americans have extremely fragmented intelligence apparatus. So they just aren't getting good information. During the war, uh, the first, not the first, but the, the, there's a huge ramping up of intelligence collection in World War II in the Office of Strategic Services. A lot of people on Capitol Hill didn't like the Office of Strategic Services. And one of those people was Harry Truman from when he was a senator from Missouri. And in September of 1945, he abolishes it. He says this the organization is too unconstrained, undisciplined, and has no oversight, and I don't like that this is here. It takes two years before the Central Intelligence Agency is created. So there's a two-year gap in which there isn't a central focus of intelligence collecting, 
and it's the erection of a peacetime intelligence apparatus, which the U.S. hadn't had before. This is the first one. The British and the French and the Russians have all had these in peacetime before. Um, so the process of gaining intelligence is extremely difficult to do in the U.S. because the defense the what becomes the Defense Department in '47, but the Army, the Navy, the Army Air Forces, they're all trying to collect intelligence. The fledgling Atomic Energy Commission is also trying to do that. Different groups, the State Department, are trying to find information. There's nowhere to organize all of that and correlate it and figure it out. So their information is very fragmentary. That's made even worse by the fact that the Soviet Union is extremely good at counterintelligence. They have a lot of practice at it, and it's very hard for the U.S. to get assets in. So they tried, to, by assets I mean actual people, they try to drop... Um, behind enemy lines, behind Soviet lines, parachute, parachute in displaced persons and uh, people who had fled Russia, Russia, the Soviet Union, who were willing to spy, all of them are caught and killed. There's no human intelligence coming out of the Soviet Union in this 45 to 49 period. So all they have is fragmentary reports, reading the tea leaves, guessing between the lines and interpreting official statements. And so they have to make a guess. And so the U.S., has a hard time making a decision. And Truman is told repeatedly five to 10 years. And did the British know about the Soviet uh, nuclear program and how close it was? No. They had the same problems uh, that the Americans did. In spite um, of their far superior intelligence gathering capabilities. Yes, and also the fact that they had ex four extremely highly placed moles uh, from the Soviet intelligence apparatus. Kim Philby is the most famous of these. But uh, the guy who's in charge of atomic intelligence in the British apparatus is someone named Don McLean, who's a Soviet agent. So um, so part of the reason they don't know what's going on is that uh, they're made not to know what is going on. Uh, McLean becomes the liaison to the American atomic intelligence. It's um, the, the, the OSS was actually also infiltrated with Soviet agents, in part because it had been trained by, by the British who had been infiltrated by Soviet agents. The Soviets are very good at this, and they were able to manipulate it. And how were they so good precisely at getting spies into all of these high-ranking places? Um, uh, it's, it's a good... The, I would say the dominant reason is ideology, is that um, the vision of uh, a communist world was very appealing to a bunch of people in the interwar period who became committed to the ideals of the revolution, the Marxist revolution as they understood it, and... That was especially true in Britain, which had an active Labour Party and an active social democratic movement. And it was popular in universities, and it got... Those people are very well trained. Everybody assumed that you had your dalliance with that, and then you gave it up. But they maintained themselves as secret members of the party. Another part is the Soviet Union was very good at using compromising material. A lot of these people had um, uh, gay romantic relationships and didn't want to be exposed. There was blackmail. There was bribery. Um, so multiple different things make people willing to serve as agents and they, because of the, um, way class works in Britain. And if you go to the right schools and you have the right background, your ability to get a, that kind of job during the war becomes easier. So perhaps the McCarthyian ideal of like there's Soviets all over the place, agents everywhere, we've got to find them was a little less wrong than people thought. Um, there were agents, but, uh, there was... McCarthy was wrong about the U.S. So in the U.S., <laughs> sure. that wasn't true. Okay. Um, but in this, in in Britain, there they weren't everywhere, but they were in certain specific places. Um, in the U.S., there actually is much less penetration because the ideology is less attractive, because there isn't an apparatus to infiltrate in the same way, and um, counterintelligence eventually gets to be pretty good. So they catch a lot of this stuff. So that we knew uh, around the time that the Soviet um, test bomb is detonated, which is August 29th, 1949. Uh, the U.S. knows a great deal about what was going on in the Soviet Union because they have decrypted, uh, they've begun to decrypt a large number of cables they intercepted from New York and D.C. that were being sent back to uh, Moscow. Those were encoded. The Soviets screwed up the encoding process. They used a technique called a one-time pad, which is unbreakable. You actually can't break a one-time pad. But um, the one-time pad's only work as unbreakable if you use them only once. Uh, there was a, someone got lazy and printed duplicate pages in many of the one-time pads, and this linguist named Meredith Gardner, who uh, was very talented, figured out that this pattern was going this way. 
and uh, decrypted them. And so they knew a lot about what kinds of cables were leaving the U.S., including from Los Alamos, from the heart of the Manhattan Project. And so they were able to arrest Klaus Fuchs, the most visible of these, from the basis of those decrypts. But they couldn't tell anybody that that's where they got the information from because they didn't want the Soviets to know that they had decrypted it. So they have to get Klaus Fuchs to confess. So they make they tell the British, arrest Klaus Fuchs. He definitely did it. You should make him confess. He confesses. And these decrypts, the Venona decrypts, is what they're later called, stay secret for a little while longer. You quote uh, Princeton ph uh, physicist Eugene Wigner, Today it is puzzling that so many people could have seriously hoped the atomic were, uh, that the atomic bomb would bring world peace, but it is important to recall that we did. What was the rationale for this belief? Given how many experts predicted the Soviet Union would soon acquire nuclear capability, why wasn't there more concern about proliferation? Um, it's a good question. It's partially, again, based on World War There, It's based on the sense that when a war is destructive enough, people have a revulsion against war. And well, the, the, after World War One, there's World War Two. Yeah, I know. But, but the immediate reaction after World War One is we shouldn't have a war like this again. Uh -huh. And importantly, chemical weapons weren't used again. Uh, they were used in World War One. There's a there's a treaty banning them in 1925, which the Americans don't sign, but everybody else does. And they aren't used in World War Two. And so there's a sense that this bomb is so much worse. Uh, that it's not that we're not going to fight again. What's so weird about that is that people have been saying that since gunpowder. So like they were like, oh, when gunpowder is introduced, we have rifles. There's no way there's going to be war. People said this about the crossbow. It's a very common trope. Every time a new weapon is introduced, that'll stop war. Another reason they think that it's going to be that that it will have this effect of peace is that the atomic bomb is a scientific instrument. You need to have physicists to do it. And the physicists believe, and this is a lot of hubris on their part, that they um, will be needed by the state and therefore their views will really count. And they think they can talk to the scientists in the Soviet Union and come to an agreement about not doing this. And so the scientists will be in the driver's seat and therefore produce a world that will be harmonious and with free interchange, which is like how they pictured the world of science being. Um, there was some concern about the Soviets getting the bomb right away. There was this sense that there was some time so that you could arrange for a deal if you acted quickly before the Soviets got very far along. The first deal that's proposed is what's put before the UN as the Baruch Plan, but it, its origins were something called the Atchison-Lilienthal Report, named after Dean Atchison, who eventually becomes Secretary of State, and um, David Lilienthal, who was the first head of the Atomic Energy Commission, which is the precursor agency of the Department of Energy. And since many people don't know this, I should just say it, the Department of Energy is the organization in charge of making atomic bombs. That's still true. Um, it's not like that. That doesn't happen somewhere else. It happens in the Department of Energy. Anyway, the Atomic Energy Commission uh, had David Lilienthal was an old New Dealer, uh, and uh, Atchison was an extremely gifted diplomat. And they uh, consulted with Robert Oppenheimer, who was the head of Los Alamos, and asked what they could do to stop a bomb. And Oppenheimer's ideas got encoded in this report, which was basically to set up a transnational group of scientists who would report freely the information from their countries about capacities towards a bomb and thereby enable the international community to stop a bomb before it starts. Again, it's this idea of the scientists being in charge, being able to control some of how the course of the conversation goes. Um, Bernard Baruch is a financier and an old World War I type guy, very important in the Wilson administration, who proposes this to the UN with some hitches on it. Uh, things like the veto of the Security Council doesn't apply in atomic matters and a couple of other things like that. The Soviets block this idea and it ends up dying. But there was hope in 1945-46 when everybody was certain the Soviets don't have a bomb, that maybe the possession of a bomb by the Americans and some good faith gestures could produce uh, the Soviets from not having the bomb. And then once the Soviets do get the bomb, there is a sense that maybe the two of them could keep it in check. And that's uh, actually becomes a very strong area of cooperation in the Cold War. So the British get their bomb in 52, I believe, although I'm not 100% certain. The, the French get theirs in the late 50s. And um, there, at that point, there's some concern that this number might get really big. But when the Chinese test their bomb, uh, which is 64, the Soviets and the Americans are like, we've got to stop this. And so there's a point of cooperation between the two major superpowers about proliferation, but it takes some time to build. 
And that's at that point, no longer let's get rid of the bomb. It's like, let's keep a lid on this and keep the number really low. Well, let's keep it between friends. Keep it between friends. <laughs> if you look at the predictions in the 50s, it's scary. that They predict that by now there would be about 35 to 45 nuclear powers, and there are 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that 10 is pretty recent, some of the ones on the recent edge of that. And the number is way lower than people thought. And part of the reason it is is because the Soviets and the Americans were really aggressive about trying to discourage people from making bombs. But that's later. That's not in the 40s when they thought maybe the Americans could bully everybody else into stopping and then they could keep on going themselves. Truman stated following the discovery that the Soviets had acquired nuclear capability, quote, ever since atomic energy was first released by man, the eventual development of this new force by other nations was to be expected. So, do you think this contradicts Wigner's statement at all? Um, it, it, it's, it's, both are true, right? It was to be expected, and no one expected it. It's just different <laughs> people thought those things. There were some people who said in 1945, two or three years, they're going to have a bomb. Uh-huh. And everybody's like, you people are crazy. And then other people said it will take 20 years or never, such as General Groves, who's the military officer in charge of the Manhattan Project. He says there's no way they can do it. They don't have the industrial infrastructure. So between two years and never is like where it's going to be. And most people think that the Soviets are going to be able to do it eventually. They have very smart physicists who the Americans knew from before the war when there was a lot of cooperation in the 1920s and 30s in nuclear physics. And they figured they were going to get the material at some point. In the mid 40s, the reason why they think it will take a very long time is they think that uranium is rare. Um, Uranium is the thing you need to both be uranium, you need to refine it to get the right kind of uranium, or to turn into plutonium to make a bomb. Uh, Before World War II, it's basically used, has almost no uses. Its major use is to make really bright yellow paint. And (laughs) and it's just not a common substance to be used. So no one's really mined it and figured out where it's from. Turns out uranium is really, really common. Uh, The thing that delays the Soviet bomb the most is trying to find enough high quality uranium to make a, a bomb industry possible. Which they do find in the they, Ural they, Mountains. Yeah, they, they, they find plenty. I mean, it, it covers one-sixth of the Earth's land surface. They're going to be able to find some uranium. Uh, and they also have uranium from mines in East Germany and very rich mines in Czechoslovakia, which people knew were there. The American uh, uranium comes initially from the Belgian Congo and from Brazil and to some extent from Canada and Sweden. And eventually, uh, in the 50s, the Americans start digging it in the US, but they hadn't prospected it because they didn't think it was that important or interesting. So yes, it was to be expected, but uh, it was also, um, it, Truman hadn't expected it, but other people had expected that this was gonna happen eventually. And people did tell him five to 10 years, so he expected it, just not so soon. Uh, in a sense, the atomic bomb did bring peace, although only at the low risk of complete annihilation should a war ever break out. Uh, Nobel Prize winner Otto Hahn, as you mentioned, told reporters he was relieved upon learning that the Soviet Union had acquired nuclear weapons since the, quote, dual possession of atomic weapons meant that no one would ever use them, unquote. Was Hahn foolish to think so? It's hard to say. I mean, we should, we should qualify how much peace there's been. Uh, there's been peace in Europe. Um, so Europe used to be a really violent place. There hasn't mm-hmm. been that there. There hasn't been uh, much superpower direct conflict. There has, however, been a huge spike in, uh, not a spike, but at least continuation of proxy wars, mm-hmm. either between the superpower and uh, a client state. Which well, merely looking at like yeah. numbers of deaths yeah, from yeah, wars, yeah. It's, it's, it's plummeted. That's plummeted, but the numbers of wars still continue, uh, right? There's Vietnam, there's Afghanistan, and there's actually a, a war between the nuclear-powered U- Soviet Union and nuclear-powered Chinese in the late 60s that happens. There's a border conflict, and mm-hmm. but it doesn't break up. So, um, but nonetheless, the point still stands. Body counts are down, and the, uh, the, the bipolar structure seems to indicate that bombs, that, that at least the bomb will not be used. And the atomic bomb has not been used in conflict to date since 1945. I don't know that Han was foolish to think so. Certainly the scientists who worked for the Soviets, um, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the, those who worked for Hitler went on his quest to either get a uranium machine or a bomb and blaming them for doing that. But these people gave a bomb to Stalin and who's not a nice person. Um, but a lot of them have a, 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 a very clear moral view that that was the right thing to do. They think that it will deter in the same way that multiple chemical weapons and chemical stockpiles seem to have deterred in World War II from the use of those weapons again. So again, they're using chemical weapons analogy. 
And they also think um, that only one country has been known to be brutal enough to actually use these weapons on unarmed civilians, and that's the United States. <laughs> so we need a weapon like this. The Soviets have seen cities be completely destroyed. They saw Leningrad be destroyed. They saw Stalingrad be destroyed. They know what that looks like. And so there's a feeling that we need to deter the Americans, and the way to do that is to have a bomb. And it's hard to know because we have such a small example, but it does seem like um, there's a hesitancy towards using atomic weaponry that there isn't towards using other kinds of weaponry. And that that norm has been, uh, for the most part, reinforced and stabilized since then. So I don't think Han is completely off his rocker to think that, although it's hard to make a precise scientific conclusion about that because the N is too small. So do we attribute the relative peacefulness of the second half of the 20th century to mutually assert destruction, do you think? Or is it something else? Um, I don't know if it's mutually assured destruction. It's certainly the sense of uh, an unwillingness to use nuclear weapons. Right. Well, the reason why I want to say not mutually assured destruction is because uh, there was a relatively recent historical incident where a country with two nuclear weapons managed to deter the United States from uh, invading it, which is the North Korean incident. Right. Like, so they cannot, there's no mutually assured destruction there in that there's no chance for the North Koreans to completely destroy the United States. There's no capacity for that. There is the capacity the U.S. has to do that to North Korea. Nonetheless, deterrence happened. So I would attribute it to deterrence. I just don't know if the deterrence is because of mutually assured destruction or just a revulsion at these specific weapons and a sense that we can use those weapons to de-escalate conflict by just saying there's a barrier we won't cross. Let's not make things bad enough that we have to go there. But I do think the new, the it's, it seems hard to... to it seems like a really weird argument to say that nuclear weapons have no effect on the fact that great power warfare has not broken out since. Yep. Uh, you pose the question, if the Americans knew in late August 1949 that the Soviet Union had de detonated its entire supply of plutonium, would they not certainly mount an attack before the Soviet Union could properly arm itself? Indeed, given that the U.S. had a nuclear monopoly and was not using it, why did the Soviet Union consider it vital to develop an arsenal rather than incredibly risky? Um... It's a good question. Uh, the, I would say the main reason uh, why they, they felt like they had to have the bomb. And they felt like they had to have the bomb because if they didn't have the bomb, the U.S. would eventually try to dictate action and, set, and coerce them into certain behaviors that they didn't want to do. So they needed to ha create a deterrent of their own so that they could not be bullied. And Stalin's willing to risk a lot. For that, Stalin's uh, care for the well-being of much of his population is not very high. So uh, the fact that it might lead to some preemptive conflict is a factor, but not one he's especially uh, weighing very strongly. When the Soviets test their bomb, they don't announce that they did so. They say nothing. The Americans announce that the Soviets have the bomb. The Soviets don't admit it until two years later when they actually have an arsenal. Not a big arsenal, but they have a couple of weapons. So the Soviets were hoping that they could test their bomb and no one would know. And uh, because of one very uh, monomaniacally focused member of the Atomic Energy Commission, a guy named Louis Strauss, um, they set, uh, the U.S. set up in early 49 a detection system to filter out the, the detritus that's floating off the Soviet Union and try and analyze it for radioactive elements. So the Americans find out that the Soviets had a bomb because they had set up this detection system. If not, because of the point earlier about the lack of human intelligence, they wouldn't have known. Many of the people who worked on the Soviet bomb in the Soviet Union didn't know that the test had happened. They found out when they heard illegal BBC broadcasts from abroad about Truman's announcement. In 64, the U.S. knows that the Chinese are going to detonate their bomb a few weeks in advance. They see the troop movements and the setting up of a territory in, the, in Lopnur in the desert, and they know that this is going to happen. And there's a debate within the, within the um, Johnson administration about whether they should, quote, strangle the baby in the cradle, unquote, <laughs> uh, and launch a strike to stop it. And they decide it's too risky, even though they think the Soviets, they think the Soviets might intervene Mm -hmm. to uh, defend, although it's after the Sino-Soviet split, so it's not clear why they thought that, but they decide that that's too risky. So the thought has been there about preemptive strike to stop it. If the Americans had that kind of capacity in 1949, would they have done so 
then. It's really hard to say, but they find out about the bomb a couple of weeks after it's launched through this sifting of atmospheric gases. Um, so I, I think that the Stalin's choice to push forward for the bomb seems to make a lot of sense to me because he uh, doesn't want to be in a position where he doesn't have this weapon and the U.S. has the capacity to force him to do anything. Well, what does he care? He's like, what, 70 years old? He's, uh, yeah, <laughs> He's he, like... he lives until 53. He lives a long time. Yeah. He, he doesn't want that to happen. And also, he knows how many bombs the Americans have uh-huh. because he has intelligence assets, which tell him. In 1947, there were seven. The Americans uh, stopped production, basically, in late 45, and they don't resume production until Truman and Lilienthal decide to inquire how many bombs they actually have, and they realize how small it is, and then they start to ramp up production very significantly. But um, Stalin knows what those numbers are, so he can have a sense of how bad a nuclear strike would be, and it seems like a reasonable risk in 49, and he thinks there's no chance the Americans will find out. They are very surprised, the Soviets, that the Americans found out. They assumed it was a spy, which it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, certainly at the time, given that bombs were delivered by means of plane, wouldn't it have been more reasonable, perhaps, for the Soviet Union to simply put more into its air defense and shoot down whatever seven planes were carrying the seven bombs? Um, that would be a way of doing it, except that the Soviets already have an air defense, which is the size of the Soviet Union. Um, the the uh, range of a B-29 is something like... I... I, I it's 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 something like five thousand miles. Um, it, that's a long distance, but mm-hmm. that's one way. And uh, Semipolitinsk, which is where they test the bomb, is like way out in Kazakhstan. Uh, it would and they would have to fly from Britain basically to get there, and they wouldn't be able to do it. So, like in a sense, they could fly from they could fly, fly to Moscow. They yeah. could definitely get mm-hmm. Moscow, um, but they wouldn't be able to necessarily hit all the places they would need to hit. The Soviet Union is very large. The distances are huge. Um, and the number of cities that Stalin could conceivably disperse to are really high. Uh, so that that is, I think, part of the reason for it. But it is something that could have happened, and the Soviets do bulk up on their air defenses. Um, they also have the largest army, standing army, in place. And that standing army is very well poised towards doing a lot of damage to Europe. And that's a kind of hostage that Stalin has as well. Um, so the, they are pretty well matched. The, so the U.S. has atomic bombs, but the Soviets have conventional superiority, and the Americans know that. Mm-hmm. And of course, they just put a lot more effort into military production, right? Yeah. So. And they had a lot, but they didn't demobilize at the end of World War II, which the Americans did pretty yeah. rapidly. And that uh, that creates this asymmetry. Part of the reason the Americans think they can demobilize so fast is because they have the bomb. Does Khrushchev's forced resignation following the Cuban Missile Crisis show that the Soviet Union was as frightened as the U.S. of nuclear war? And if so, why did the Soviets provoke the West countless times over seemingly very small issues like Cuba, the Berlin Airlift, Vietnam War, Korean War, rather than follow Stalin's celebrated socialism in one country? Uh, That's a great question. So Khrushchev is is deposed in 64 in part because of his... um, failure to stand up to the Americans in the case of Cuba and of uh, Berlin earlier than that. But he's also deposed for a whole bunch of other reasons that have to do with internal Soviet politics. Uh There is a connection to nukes, but it's not entirely that. However, we do know from the internal archives and recent transcripts and interviews that the Soviets were terrified of the possibility of a nuclear war happening. Khrushchev himself was terrified of that thing happening. To me, the the question is not why they backed down, but why he put the missiles in Cuba in the first place. Yeah, it seems extremely risky. <laughs> it seems extremely... They didn't think the Americans were going to find it. It seems risky. They didn't think they were going to find it. I mean, they detonate a bomb in Kazakhstan. The, the Americans aren't going to find it. They've sent missiles to Cuba. <laughs> but, they, but they've done a lot of other things, too, that the Americans don't find out about. So, <laughs> so, I mean, that's so, right in the backyard, and, and Yeah, I know. And when they flew... But they, they also shot down a plane, a uh, spy plane over the Soviet Union. Yeah, so they had, some, they had some sense that they could actually do this and handle it. Yeah. Um, but, oh, yes, I mean, they, there was some worry about that. I would disagree with the sense that those were minor disputes. Um, the U.S. invaded Cuba, which is the only Soviet ally in the Western Hemisphere. And so the Soviets feel a need to defend that ally. That doesn't seem like a minor point to them. Cuba's and, a small island, small population. Which is in within nuclear weapons, nuclear missile strike and bomber strike right, from Washington, the... D.C., which seems like a really important thing to have. The Americans have West Berlin, which is has the same 
right. relative distance. So for them, it's actually pretty important to be able to strike the U.S. to right, maintain deterrence. It, just having the possibility to strike the U.S. in a way makes it more chancy, doesn't it? It makes it more chancy, but the whole point of deterrence working is you have to make, it has to be credible. It has to be as though right. you could actually do it in order for somebody else to back down. If someone says, well, you know, if I did, could reach him, I would totally launch a missile at you if my missiles could get that far. But uh-huh. they can't. But if they could, I would do it. Although, as you point out, the, like North Korea, like they've got a couple nuclear missiles, nothing like the Soviet Union, but it's still enough to keep them safe. And they have enough to hit Seattle and L.A., which is yeah. enough. Yeah. Uh, and, like and, the and, Soviet and, Union had enough to hit some big center, centers in the West. They had centers of Western Europe, but not, yeah. the, United, not, not, not the mainland. So, and... The Korean War is a trickier phenomenon because that's, um, to some extent, that got out of hand. That was something that the North Koreans wanted to do. And uh, the Chinese are the ones who step in later and escalate it. Um, And in the same way, Vietnam is one case where the Americans kind of launch into a colonial war that they shouldn't have been in, in a sense. So lots of people are doing lots of risky things. There is a theory in nuclear deterrence, the, the madman theory, that you actually do need to do crazy things periodically in order to show that you're crazy enough to risk suicide. Uh-huh. So you have to do go half-cocked over something. like So the Yom Kippur War happens and the Americans just scramble the bombers and go into alert. Like there's, They do that in part to signal to the Soviets that they're just crazy enough to do something more serious. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, there, there, there's arguments for the psychological validity of this particular position, but that's why they keep pushing at it. Um, the Soviets do crazy things periodically to also indicate that they're willing to um, risk suicide if their interests aren't met, and that enables both sides to back down. They can sort of see that the other side's serious, and then they step back and think, can we make a deal? Um, it's easy to say that now because the nuclear war didn't break out, but the nuclear yeah. war could have totally broken out over one of those yeah. uh, macho chest-thumping exhibits that they uh-huh. were doing, uh, but they didn't, and so now we come up with all these arguments to try and explain why it didn't happen. So, Do you agree with theory that we were really only one Russian captain away from nuclear war and the Cuban Missile Crisis? Um we were very, I mean, we were very close to a nuclear bomb being launched. Uh, whether it was an American one or a Soviet, Soviet one is hard to say. Um, whether that's a full nuclear war is hard to say. Like, right, like, the, it, like would all the missiles have... It, it seems from uh, what we know about Khrushchev and his advisors and Kennedy and his advisors that no one was going to let all the missiles go. Like, it wasn't going to be global thermonuclear war. Um, but that some exchange could have happened was was uh, a, a high possibility. Uh, did World War II greatly encourage the production of atomic bombs, or would they have merged in the 1940s regardless? Um, yes and yes. Uh, so, <laughs> um, there's... Uh, the, let me do the second yes first. They would have emerged in the 1940s regardless. So, um, in li- December 38, fission is discovered. The fact that uranium splits into two daughter elements with the release of a lot of energy. Within several months... Uh, Every European, every leading government, every government that has like a big army and has uh, a big scientific capacity is confronted by scientists writing them letters saying, you know, you can make a bomb using that. And that happens in the U.S., it happens in uh, Britain, it happens in France, it happens in Japan, it happens in the Soviet Union, it happens in Germany, it happens everywhere. So, uh, and all of those places start looking into it. They, they're like, oh, maybe we'll just take a look and see what can happen. It's important to know what the other side might do. Um, so without the war, it's clear that everybody knows that you, everybody believes that it's possible, it might be possible to build such a bomb. It depends on certain characteristics of uranium, which they didn't know yet. Uh, and so it could have been that it's thinkable, but it turns out uranium doesn't behave that way. Actually, it behaves that way. So they all find that out. They all know a bomb is feasible. They all make estimates of how expensive it would be to do and how long it would take to make. Uh, so in the 40s or early 50s, someone would have developed this thing if there had been no World War II. It just seems like everybody had the idea and somebody would have worked on the idea. Um, the war accelerates that a lot and in some places decelerates it. Um, so the war releases large amounts of money mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of organizational talent in the forms of military logistics about how to design and 
had to design a whole industrial production system to make these things work. Not to mention time pressure. Yeah, time pressure is also there. And the time pressure is why part of the reason why it slows it down. So in Germany, they're to, like the state is told, we could make one of these things, but you know we're fighting a two-front war, we're under embargo, and you want us to make lots of things like rockets, and given budget constraints, and the fact that these things will probably take us about five, six years to do, and the war is supposed to be over in two or three, which is what the Germans have thought. There's no point in investing in it. So this time, the, the Americans say this war is going to be a long war. We should make these bombs now. And the Americans are pretty rich and aren't being fought. Their territory is not being fought on, so they can afford to do this. Other countries are like, we could do this, but the war is going to be shorter, so let's stop. So it has effects in multiple different ways. But in the, in the U.S. context, the war is tremendously an accelerant for devoting a large number of resources into it. They devote a lot of money into that. They devote even more money into radar, and they devote even more money into building a B-29, a long-distance bomber. So the Americans have a lot of money to do this with, and the other countries don't, and so they have to make their investment decisions differently. But the war is the excuse that allows that to happen in the U.S. at the speed in which it happens. It would have happened slower. There's no question about that. So with no war, do you think Nazi Germany would have then developed a bomb? Eventually. Eventually. Probably. I mean, like, a, like a, probably something like that. It's hard to, these are counterfactual questions, so sure, it's very, sure. very hard to know what would have happened. But they have some of the world's leading physicists, especially nuclear physicists. They have access to supplies of uranium from Czechoslovakia. And uh, they make a couple of decisions in the war and a, and a couple of bad measurements that make them think the bomb is either too expensive or not deliverable. It'll be too big to actually send anywhere. So they decide to invest in rockets instead. Um they could have made those decisions in a different way. And if there wasn't the pressure of the war, they would, might have been like a long, slow back burner project. Although so many other things would have had to have been different for that to work out. Uh, so the Soviet nuclear stockpile greatly exceeded that of the U.S.'s during most of the Cold War. Uh, was their stockpile more than what would have been required to destroy the entire U.S.? Or, you know, like basically destroy. Uh, or if so, And if so, why would the Soviets have overbuilt their nuclear arsenal? So, uh, take. so. The, the the exceeding happens starting in the 60s. So, like, before then, the U.S. stockpile is bigger than the Soviet stockpile. Mm -hmm. So it depends how you periodize Cold War to make that statement. Sure, sure. Um, but, uh, yes, they could have destroyed the U.S. many times over, and the U.S. had more missiles and still does. Even though we've had massive reductions, the U.S. has, say, 2,500 nuclear warheads, and the Russians still do. That's way too many. Like, 2,500 cities... It's hard to find them. Um, so you aim several at one place, thinking that some of them will get knocked down and some of them will just, the rockets won't work or they'll get taken off course. Um, so yeah, you, there's tremendous overkill on both sides of this. The Soviets have a lot of overkill, but they also have a lot less confidence in the reliability of their delivery mechanisms. Uh, they think that their bombers and their uh, rockets may not get to the right place, so they need to launch more at a target in order to hit it. Um I'm not saying that their stuff is actually worse than the American stuff. It's that they have less confidence than the Americans do. The Americans think that their stuff is going to get where it's supposed to go. Um, so they overbuild and the U.S. overbuilds. And part of that is also just a, uh, once someone has built so many, you're like, well, I have to destroy those in their silos. So I need to build more to destroy the new missiles they've built. And then the other side's like, well, they built more missiles. So I need to build more missiles to do that. So there is a kind of push me, pull you escalation. It's enormously expensive. It sucks a huge amount of money out of the budgets of both countries, and it's a tremendous economic drain. And in the late Soviet period, that tremendous economic drain is really significant. And so it has an effect on the ability of the Soviet Union to adapt to other things. So um, they do overbuild. So do we. The U.S. is able to uh, bear that more because of the flexibility of the economy. I mean, also the economy is just so much larger. Yeah, the economy is <laughs> yeah. larger. There's lots of reasons why they do that. The it's still incredibly expensive to maintain these things, and we still do maintain them, and it's and everybody's in the process of modernizing them now to the tune of trillions of dollars. Um, so it's interesting that we're still doing it, even though one might argue it doesn't make as much sense as it did before. If you re-ran the 20th century a hundred times, how many times have those hundred nuclear war of star that best guess? Ugh. I actually just don't think I can answer this question. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, best guess. You, best, if you're not, you've studied this your whole life. <laughs> best guess, um, a lot. 
A lot. Uh, a lot. Like, not like, not like over 50%, but a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a number of close calls at various points. Um, but there are also ways in which you could run the 20th century and no one discovers fission, right? Like, like, yeah, so like, uh, um, but, uh, if you look at the crises that get pretty close, um, they could have gone the wrong way a couple of times. And so my, the idea that there would have been several possibilities for nuclear war, I think is real. Of course, there's the idea that the Russian Revolution and indeed World War One itself were not too likely. So, yeah, that, uh, yeah, that, so, so, would have so completely like, and, changed and, the course. And that would have totally changed yeah. the course, right? Like, but yeah. would the U.S. also still have an enemy at some point? Probably. Most likely, <laughs> yes. Would it be as scary as the Soviet Union? Um, that, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's it's hard to know. Um, I don't know the the. the that's something like fascism could have had. It's hard to know because you need World War One. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, so this is part of the reason why historians hate doing these like counterfactuals is because so many things aren't there. But the if you just look at the closeness of the alerts, sometimes you think that was that was either luck or the fact that um, the military officers in charge of doing the final decision just said, "I just don't think so this time." And we, you know, basically, the, the decision of one man prevented nuclear war. And that that mm-hmm. absolutely happened in the Soviet Union, where they thought a, a launch a launch had happened mm-hmm. because their instruments told them that. And there's this one guy, Petrov, who just died. Of, I think it's Petrov. I'm not entirely certain. So, podcast listeners, apologize if I got that wrong. Um, he he made a decision. He was like, "I'm not gonna do it. I don't think that's a real attack." Mm-hmm. And he was he was right. Uh, and he stopped a nuclear war. Uh, but th- there are, I'm sure, other cases that we don't know about. How accurate of a simulation does Dr. Strange's 1964 offer of a nuclear war between the U.S. and the USSR? Um, it's a great movie. Absolutely. Uh, and it, and it, <laughs> it demonstrates a lot of the logic behind the nuclear buildup brilliantly. The actual way the war breaks out there is contingent on there being this doomsday device, this idea of like kind of a, a, a dead hand or some sort, something where if a nuclear bomb detonates in the Soviet surface, all the Soviet bombs will be launched and that's the ultimate deterrent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was proposed, but no one ever built that thing. So that particular nuclear war couldn't have happened. But the idea that um, it's possible for a rogue... Um, Ameri- a rogue commander, a rogue American or Soviet commander to make a decision like that, especially on a submarine, uh, which is not what happens in Strangelove, but is what would happen in later movies, um, uh, is plausible. I mean, it could have happened. Uh, what's so great about that movie is the way it dramatizes the uh, the way you're locked into a way of thinking, and you th- and both for the lower level commanders and for the president and the Soviet premier about like. You, you have so few moves that you're allowed to make because you think you know what the other's response will always be. And that kind of suffocating um, iron cage of logic is really um, brilliantly depicted. So in spite of Truman's famous quote of I'm not going to allow some strapping young lieutenant colonel uh, to decide when to pull the trigger, as I uh, push, the, uh, push the button, is uh, that, that still still could have happened. It still could have happened, and, ex- and partly because Truman was only president until early 53, and then Eisenhower delegates a lot to further commanders, including pre-delegating authority to launch to a lot of people. And once you get the submarines, which is really a 60s phenomenon, there's no way of communicating with them when they're underwater. So uh, they, you've automatically pre-delegated the right to launch. And they come up periodically and check and hear a signal that everything's okay and then they, like, they don't launch. But they're told that if you get up and you don't hear a signal, it's because we're, we're gone and so you should launch. And that, that commander could make that decision. Yeah, well, of course, the, it might just be faulty techniques. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. But <laughs> it, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that could happen. And the problem of the submarine deterrent is, is uh, something that nuclear strategists spent a lot of, they pulled their hair out over. How can we make this both a reliable deterrent, because it's great because they move around, you can't find them, etc. But the fact that you can't find them is part of the reason we can't talk to them and keep yeah. them up to date about what's going on. And that tension is built into the nature of it. What new projects are you currently working on? Um, I'm just finishing a book uh, that has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It's about Albert Einstein in Prague. Um, he taught at the university, the German university in Prague from 1911 to 1912. And uh, it's a very short period in his career. He um, 
it seems like a not very significant thing from the outside because he doesn't produce any of the theories that we associate with him and so on. But it turns out if you look at what happens later, both to him and to the city, um, there's a lot of stuff in Prague that resonates with Einstein and that keeps developing his ideas and his presence. And he gets a lot of ideas starting there for gravity, for in philosophy, for Zionism that end up shaping the rest of his career. So it's a break from nuclear weapons and a way of kind of doing a bit of uh, Prague history and a bit of Einstein history in one. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Gordon. Thank you, you very much. If you enjoyed this installment of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next month, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. And I'm Aiden Kaplan. And, and together, together we are the History Twins. twins.